Charles Moore, the author of Margaret Thatcher's authorised biography. I always reminded myself doing this book that I wasn't writing the history of her government. I was writing the biography of a flesh and blood human being and in particular a flesh and blood woman. I've never been able to get her in a trouser suit. <laughs> the only time she ever wore trousers, she went down a mine somewhere in the north. On BBC Radio 4, Charles Moore takes us through the process of writing Margaret Thatcher's biography. That's this Sunday at half past one. And Nicholas Farrell reads from Margaret Thatcher, the authorised biography, Monday to Friday mornings next week at a quarter to ten. And now on BBC Radio 4, the journalist and writer John Ronson continues his series with John Ronson on Undeserved Rewards. Back in 2005, the writer Helen Keane sent a script to Channel 4. It was a working-class comedy about life in a northern town. Channel 4 liked it so much they awarded her and her co-writer Miriam a £10,000 prize and they invited them to a ceremony in London to accept it. I'm from quite a working-class background in Yorkshire, but obviously I don't sound like I am because I've had you know, various things with speech problems and stuff over the years and I've done acting classes and so I now sound quite la da instead of very northern. Did you and have elocution lessons? I did for a bit, yeah, because I was quite... Um, have you heard of selective mutism? Yes, I have. Yes, in I fact, I've might. met somebody yes. with selective mutism. Yes. But the difference between you and her mm. is that she didn't talk much. <laughs> I mean, I very much recovered. Uh, I'm very much in remission. But um, yeah, no, when I was a kid, that was a real thing that I would do. And I'd have very complex rules for when I could speak and when I couldn't speak. And it's kind of an anxiety related yeah. thing, I think. And that's how I ended up with Posh Jackson. So when we wrote the stuff that we wrote for Channel 4, it was very much written in such a way, the sort of scenarios and the sketches and the sort of things we were talking about were quite a lot from my background, so from a working class North of England background. And I think it was a bit of a surprise to Channel 4. And I think they were not quite expecting these Twitter people going, oh, that's delightful that we've won. We're both delighted to have won. A terrible thought struck Helen as she arrived at the awards ceremony. What if Channel 4 now privately felt they were giving the prize to posh people who didn't deserve it? When they met us, they were obviously a bit like, OK, because I think it would have been a great PR thing to have gone, oh, look, we've unearthed these comedy writers. Did they say anything? There was a huge dinner after we'd won. There was a, it was a massive sort of dinner with like loads of people from Channel 4. And we were kind of sat over in a corner. And they sort of went, and our winners are over there. And we sort of both looked, kind of looked like they maybe could ask us to say anything. And, then, and yes, so, but and they just didn't let us speak. They didn't kind of let us speak. They went, thank you. And they went, yes, thank you. They were just obviously a little bit, yeah, it did feel a bit like they were like, oh no. I kind of did get a bit of a vibe. Helen Keane. She says maybe she imagined the whole thing. Maybe none of those thoughts went through the prize giver's minds. But if they did, I sort of empathise with Channel 4. It is a terrible feeling to find out when it's too late that you're giving an award to someone who doesn't deserve it. This is a programme about undeserving recipients of rewards. There's a writer's room in a TV studio in Maidstone, Kent, that's quite featureless and utilitarian. It looks kind of like a solicitor's office in Peckham, and inside is a comedian who used to be a solicitor in Peckham. Bob Mortimer. 
I did start off liking it and I had some successes. So, for example, the first time that I was ever in a very small way in the public eye was I was the first person to take Southwark Council to court because of cockroach infestation. And I was on the front of the South London Press as the cockroach king. So and that was, was a proud moment. That's what I went into the law for, you know. Well, that's great that you did that. I mean, that's, there's you. no downside to that. As I increasingly, because it's where the money is, as I increasingly concentrated on criminal cases, the thing I could not resist doing was asking all my clients whether they were guilty or not. It's something you're not supposed to do and that you would be struck off if it was found out that you had done that or you'd represented somebody that you knew was guilty. But I couldn't resist saying to them, I can defend you better if I know exactly what really happened. Right. And they would tell me. And you knew that that was wrong? Absolutely, yeah. I just couldn't resist it, you know. Um, just curiosity? Well, I think it's curiosity, and I think it was also became a search for a case that I could actually believe in. Bob says he represented about 1,500 people in all. So you asked 1,500 people if they did it, yeah. and they all said yes. They all said yes. It's absolutely true. I was on a quest, I was on a search for someone who would sit opposite me in that office and say, no, I am not guilty, I really didn't do this. And it never happened to me. And so you've obviously still defended them all? Yeah, you do. It was a busy practice down in Peckham, as you can imagine. I was in court every single day. And... Two years in, three years in, four years in, representing people who you know as guilty and seeing a good percentage of them walk away is very disillusioning, very depressing. One night when I was in Peckham, I was going into a pub and I was suddenly separated from my friends and there stood in front of me was a lad with a knife at my throat asking for my money and then he looked up at me and he said, oh, hello, Mr Mortimer. <laughs> and I'd actually, I'd actually got him off quite a few times. But I was relieved to see him at that time. So he put his knife away? Yeah. But can you estimate out of the 1,500 or so people that you defended, how many of them got off? It would be a pure guess. I would say of the ones that pleaded not guilty rather than guilty. Of the ones that pleaded not guilty, it won't be far off 50%, I would say. They say in the profession, you just need to throw enough dust in the juror's eyes and you'll be okay. Is that an actual... And it's very easy to do. Is that, that's an actual that's, saying? That's, a very, yeah, that's what you need to do. I did a lot of drugs cases and they went in, they found the drugs... But before you know it, the case actually becomes about what colour was the carpet in the lounge, what type of fridge was it, in what order did you enter the bedroom, what was he wearing. And if their stories don't tie in, the jury thinks, well, this is all nonsense. Forgetting the fact that, no, the drugs were in the fridge. Most people listening to this would say, well, you know, this is the way the law works and it has to be that way. But you're saying the fact is just constantly getting guilty people off does do something to your, to yeah, your soul? It certainly did for me as one of the actors involved in it. I mean, you have to have this pantomime if you believe in the rule of law. And different folks from different perspectives have differing views as to the, whether the balance is right, whether 50% acquittals is worth it. So how did you get out of it? I got out of it because as a blessed relief from being a solicitor on Thursday nights I used to go and get drunk 
with Jim Moyer, who's Vic Reeves, in a pub in Deptford. About five of us started putting on a little show in the room above the pub, and it just grew and grew and grew. And then 12 weeks later, after the first one, Michael Grade and Alan Yentop came to the show and both asked us to go on the telly. And was that Vic Reeves' big night out? That was Vic Reeves' big night out, yes. People are cynical about television industry and so on and the comedy industry, but have you found it to be a, a more moral place than the law? There's a few little fibs. Why do people tell The one that I come across mostly is when, if I've been on one of the panel shows and I'm talking to a member of the public and I mention the fact that you're given the questions beforehand and there's a team of writers available, they're truly gobsmacked. They really believe that these bright, sharp people are just making this up as they go along. Bob Mortimer. We're going to start the afternoon service, Mincha, on page 170. This is the South Hampstead Synagogue in Belsize Park, North London. Eight years ago, their husband and wife youth leaders, Ellie and Lauren Levin, decided it was time to win back the teenagers they'd been losing to secular pursuits. There's lots out there for teenagers these days, and to get them to come to synagogue on Saturday morning isn't that tempting. So we needed to do something different. We came up with the idea of an incentive scheme, and then we decided that we were going to create a currency, a new currency, a wild currency called Shababa. Right. And the teenagers would come on Saturday mornings and they would earn Shababas. Right. And the aim of the game was the more Shababas they had, the more opportunity they would have to exchange those Shababas for raffle tickets. When I say raffle tickets, I don't mean they were raffle tickets with numbers. We wrote the names of the people on the tickets. So if they had 15 raffle tickets, it just meant that their name was on 15 different pieces of paper in that hat. Okay, so basically if they went to the synagogue a lot, there would be much more chance of them winning a raffle prize at the end of it. Exactly. Consistency was going to be the key to success. And what kind of prizes are we talking about? We had uh, two tickets to uh, a Champions League game at Arsenal. We had a one-to-one meeting with the chief rabbi, Lord Sachs. We had a recording studio session at SPZ Studio run by Trevor Horn. A very, famous, a very famous producer. Yeah, these are incredible prizes. Yeah, and we had actually two tickets to Israel donated by a travel agent. In fact, all these prizes were donated by people in the community or friends of the community. Well, if I was a teenager going to the synagogue, I would have been swept up in the fervour with prizes like that. And they were. The teenagers really were swept up in the fervour. I remember that it was just really involved, like everyone would just go and be really excited because it was something to look forward to. This is Yael. She loved the incentive scheme. Earning Shababa points became the biggest thing in her life. We got these little tickets. The Shababas were tickets that they'd hand out every service. We had them in our house, just everywhere. Just cleaner would come and just be like, found one. There was a league table every week up on the youth notice board which showed the order in which each teenager was within that league, how many Shababas they had. 
and that that created a sense of competition. And you saw a massive upturn in attendance? I would say that this incentive scheme doubled our attendance. And was it all building up to the day yeah. of the raffle? Yeah, and everyone's very excited. I can imagine. The crescendo was the raffle day. We called it Shababa Day. And it was uh, approximately almost a year's worth of Shababas that had to be saved up. This was a big scheme. And on Shababa Day, which was a Sunday afternoon, they came here to the synagogue and we had various activities. We had a tabletop ice hockey just to make it a bit of a carnival atmosphere. And at the end of this day, we had the grand draw. And we began to draw the tickets and everyone was very excited. It was time for the first prize to be drawn from the hat. The rabbi put his hand in and he pulled out a name, Sasha. I came out with a good prize, being an iPod Nano. The thing was, Sasha had hardly ever turned up at the synagogue. She had earned almost no Shababa points. You won an iPod Nano? I did, probably undeservingly, but I did win an iPod Nano. So were people looking at you kind of askance, thinking, what, Sasha won something for? Yeah, hardly saw her. pretty surprised. The more committed teenagers like Yael cheered Sasha anyway knowing there were many more and even greater prizes to come. Okay, maybe the next one, maybe the next one I'll get it, or there's plenty more in the hat. And who were the people who were actually winning all the prizes? Well, the newbies, who had just come in. Were you not resentful? A little bit. There were some really, really good prizes in there. Was there one in particular that you had your eye on? I think the one I was rooting for was the trip to Israel. I was quite on that, but... I'm sure someone had a great time. (laughs) I think the tickets to Israel were won by somebody who had come to the youth programme perhaps five times. I don't remember exactly, maybe ten times, but not that many. And yet they walked off probably having had just three or four tickets in the raffle and they won these tickets to Israel. And of course, statistically, that can happen. But as the raffle progressed, the cheers got quieter and were replaced by a kind of eerie silence as the bizarre reality began to dawn on everyone. The top ten teenagers who had won the most Shababas, which meant they had the most number of raffle tickets in the draw, not one of them had won a raffle prize. The ten most enthusiastic people won nothing. The ten most enthusiastic people, the ten most committed people, those who had really come week in, week out, had the most Shababas, had the most raffle tickets, came out with nothing. We suddenly were charged in the middle of an afternoon by teenagers saying, it's not fair, it's impossible, something's gone wrong. Were they kind of lunging for the hat? They were completely putting their hands in the hat, pulling out papers, starting to open the papers. So we pulled away the hat. We said, this isn't going to tell you anything. A raffle is a raffle. Sorry you didn't win. You've worked really hard. The afternoon is over. Everyone went home. Once everyone had gone home, we quietly went over to the older teenager who had been delegated with this task of preparing the raffle tickets. He laughed. We couldn't understand why he was laughing. We said, what's so funny? He said, sorry, it's a nervous laugh. I did leave certain names out the hat because I had set aside the tickets of the highest Shababa earners to one side and I'd taken all the other regular earners and put their tickets in and I was going to put 
the tickets of the highest earners in at the end, but suddenly the raffle started and I'd forgotten to put their tickets in. And I must say, I was completely gutted. I felt a failure. I felt like I had misled a whole group of teenagers. The consequences were just rushing around in my head. We were really, really, really upset. And you were probably thinking that maybe you were going to lose some of these kids like forever. Absolutely. I think the teenagers may have thought, we're good people, why are these bad things happening? I think they may have thought that, is this what faith is all about? We remained upset for the entire evening and the entire night. The next morning we woke up and we were still upset. Well, I've got to ask, Ellie, where was God? God was uh, playing a very interesting plan in this. He, as I believe God does created a scene and left us human beings to partner him in creating the right outcome. Ellie consulted with the synagogue elders. There was much soul-searching. Difficult truths were faced, but a decision was finally made. We had to secure from the financial representative of the synagogue a prize for each one of those ten teenagers instead of what they could have won in the raffle. And it was decided that we would take them on a free trip to Thorpe Park and they had a blast of a day, and I've got pictures to prove it. So they had a nice day. They had a great day. Did any of them say while they were going on the water slides, I've got to admit, I'd rather I was at a Champions League game at the Emirates? No, I think every single one of them forgave us. L11. At a football field somewhere in London, there's a football coach who doesn't want to be named. When we asked him to talk about his great uncle, he said no. This is a skeleton in the closet story that nobody is especially proud of. But we persevered. How could we make a programme about undeserved rewards without it? And finally, to get us off his back, he consented. Yes, come on in, I'm not in the family business. I'm a football coach here. Give it back, call a Daisy. Well, it wasn't far from here that the story started, really. This is a story that's been handed down through the family about my great-uncle. His name was Jack. Before the war, he used to go round and he would do paving, scrap metal. When the war started, all that stopped. There was no scrap metal because it was all used for the war effort and no one wanted paving done. He had no intentions whatsoever of joining the war effort because he just wasn't that sort of person. The family wasn't, to be honest with you. I would call them lovable rogues. And so he managed to get hold of a forged Dockers card, which all Dockers were exempt. Meanwhile, because of the blitz going on, because everyone was down the shelters or even the sellers of their ass, he decided he'd go out and rob asses while no one was in them. Jack would wait until he heard the air raid siren. The blackout would start. London would be pitch black and Jack would slip out into the shadows. Everything went fine for Jack for a while. It felt to him like he was committing an undetectable crime until one night 
this particular night, he chose this ass because the one next door had just been bombed. And so he got into this ass, started going around, taking what he could find, which wasn't a lot. Whoosh, bang, a bomb fell. It half sort of demolished the ass, knocked him off his feet, but he come to after realising what had happened. So his first reaction was to get out quick. All of a sudden he heard screaming and calling for help. People were still in the house that he had broke into, but they were trapped in the cellar. So what does he do? Does he leave the stuff and run away, or does he help these people? What, what would you do? I don't know why, but he decided to help them. And he started pulling all the debris out, and then he managed to make an hole. He pulled out the father and the daughter, but there was also a mother and another child in there, and I think an older woman who were dead. The police arrived and they asked Jack why he'd been there and he said he'd been walking back from a friend's house. And then Jack went home. About a week later, he received an official-looking letter through the door and straight away he thought they've caught up with him. But it was actually a letter saying that he'd received a medal for his bravery. The highest award that you could get as a civilian during the war. And he did receive it. He was so proud. He told everyone about it. He got the medal. Oh, he didn't have no guilt at all. He never told no one what he was doing in there, only his family. So everyone else thought, oh, you know, he'd go in the pub, they'd all buy him a drink. He loved it. <laughs> he lived off that for quite a while, believe you me. <laughs> I know that he ended up selling that medal later on in years. He never kept it. So it's a strange thing, and not long after that, he actually joined the Heavy Rescue. So perhaps it did prick his conscience. Is he an hero or isn't he? What do you think? A football coach. Sometimes you start to lie and you're rewarded for the lie. So you lie some more and before you know it, you're lying so much you're about to become known throughout the world as one of the all-time liars like the former New York Times writer, Jason Blair. It started with small things, you know, pulling a quote from the Associated Press, and then it grew into much larger things. Like what? Um, Well, the first steps were, I would say, writing about events where I wasn't there, but leaving people with the impression that you were there when you weren't there. And then I think it escalated even beyond that to just complete fabrication of things. I remember writing about the home of a soldier who was off in Afghanistan and writing about the color of the flowers that were in their front yard, red, white, and blue pansies. <laughs> you know, it wasn't actually made up. There were red, white, and blue pansies. I just wasn't there and I didn't see it. I've got to say, Jason, if I fabricated a quote, the minute I pressed send and sent the article off, I would have an unbelievable panic attack and I would start to like plot ways to somehow get the copy back like going into the newspaper and you know sort of I don't know breaking everyone's computers I'd be in a spiral of unbelievable anxiety well I do remember constantly telling myself this will be the last time not before I sent but after I sent Jason's lies went undetected for six months 
He lied in at least 36 of the 73 articles he wrote between October 2002 and March 2003. He told the Times he was on stories in Virginia and West Virginia and Ohio. They thought he was crisscrossing the country, but actually, he was just in his apartment. He was being, he says, a mess. His bipolar disorder was one problem, he says. The other was that the more he lied, the more he was rewarded by his unsuspecting editors. There were more pats on the back. There were a number of emails to the staff that praised work that I had done or highlighted it. I was given a raise, a significant raise. I got called in by the executive editor and asked, what do you want to do with your future? Where do you want to go? All of these things were interconnected with the lies and the deception that I was giving. But then, at the end of April 2003, Jason published an interview he said he'd conducted in Spanish with the mother of a missing soldier. She said she dreamed of her son in an Iraqi village surrounded by animals and the Iraqi people he'd befriended. But actually, Jason didn't speak Spanish. And he'd never spoken to her. I had pulled details from the story of a reporter in Texas at the San Antonio newspaper. She knew, wait, that sounds a lot like my story, and she knew the people at the paper. So she raised concerns. And when did you first hear that you were under suspicion? And the story had run on a Thursday, I think. And then I found out Monday, and then they had me cornered, and I told them. Was it like an incredible relief? It was a great sense of relief that I didn't have to continue carrying on in this situation and that I didn't have to lie to the people in front of me. I'm remembering crime and punishment, and if I remember rightly, isn't the, isn't the thing about crime and punishment is that the guy, he gets away with murder, and that's even worse than being that's caught. That's punishment itself, right? Yeah. Carrying it without being caught would in many ways have been much worse. It became maybe the biggest plagiarism scandal in the history of American journalism. How had the venerable times and the American people fallen for such an epic deceit? I think the answer lies with a wounded soldier named Corporal Klingel. A week before Jason was exposed, he published an interview with the corporal, who was convalescing in a military hospital. But the whole thing was fabricated. Later, the corporal told the New York Times what really happened. You said that Corporal Klingel would limp for the rest of his life and needed to use a cane, but in fact he wasn't limping at all and didn't have to use a cane. He said that he'd never spoken to you about his mind wandering from images of his girlfriend back in Ohio to the sight of an exploding fireball to the sounds of twisting metal, that that had never happened. It sounds to me like you were making Corporal Klingel out to be more emotionally and physically damaged than he actually was. was. And yeah, do, does that say something? Portrait maybe? inside my own head. Someone said that lies that tell people what they want to hear are the lies that are less likely to be caught. Hmm. These stories all kind of fit within the genre of what people expected or believed or. 
or kind of weirdly wanted to believe because the anti-war mm-hmm. people would look at this wounded and uh, disturbed soldier and say, ah, you see what Bush is doing. And then the pro-war people would look at this soldier. Look at the sacrifice. Look at the sacrifice, right. right. So if you'd said, I went to see Corporal Klingel and he was fine, <laughs> maybe you'd have been caught out earlier. Yeah, Jason's lies remind me of Bob Mortimer's life back when he was a solicitor. Both men realised that we love nothing more than being sat down and told a good story. Maybe a good story sometimes matters to us more than the truth does. If you want to be rewarded for deceit, if you want to get away with it, tell a good story. John Ronson on Undeserved Rewards was presented by John Ronson and produced by Lucy Greenwell. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4. Next week, John looks at pride. I hear your wife died, Max. Oh, she did, son. Make no mistake. DS Matthews is back at work, but getting to the truth isn't any easier. Why couldn't she? Why couldn't she what? Understand. Is that it, Mark?